G'day, welcome along to another sermon from Good News Christian Church in Howrah, Tasmania, Australia. I'm Bernard Kane, I'm the pastor. Get in touch sometime at goodnewschristianchurch.org or why not come by one Sunday morning. For now, here's the sermon. Uh, let's pray together, brothers and sisters. Our Father God in heaven, as we set sail on another series of sermons in your word, uh, this time in the gospel according to Luke, we ask, we ask, O God, for a life-changing voyage, particularly in terms of discipleship. Father, as we explore together what it meant for those first men and women uh, to grapple with Jesus and to wrestle with his words and contend with and try and make sense of his extraordinary and miraculous life. God, we, pr- we pray, please, give us a growing integrity today as disciples of Jesus. Father, as, as we reach back through the centuries to their time, would you please give us insight so that we can actually see the unchanging and enduring things about following Jesus and learn to embody them today. And lastly, God, we ask that just as the number of disciples grew back then, may we grow in our day in maturity uh, and in number and even over these coming few weeks, a couple of months leading up to Easter as we explore Luke together. And we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Now, one of the traits for, uh, that I'd like to talk about today, one of the traits that unites us in our age to the community that came out and sort of thronged around John the Baptist, uh, you know, way back then, is this very simple yet profound longing, I think, in their hearts, this desire that they had. And I suspect we hold a very similar one despite the years um, separating us. Let me put it like this, um, as perhaps the common ground between us and John's followers just there in Luke chapter 3. John's disciples were characterised, I think, by their longing. The throngs who came to John longed, they desired, here it is, to be part of a movement that actually made the world a better place. They longed, they desired, they wanted to be part of a movement to make the world a place. They didn't want to be part of the same bunch that just continued the hurt, they wanted to be part of the healing, Uh, part of a movement that might actually get traction for once and might actually work, that might actually make a difference that didn't leave the world just as it always had been and just the same as it has been and seems always to be, a yes, beautiful in so many ways but deeply sad and compromised and confused and, and consuming kind of a devouring place that our world Um, is where generation upon generation exploits and hurts and consumes, yes, with many good things in it. They longed, I reckon, to be part of a movement that made the world a better place. And I suspect that unites us with them. Um, So take a look with me at the first paragraph there, just in in Luke 3, as Marion read it to us. Uh, You've got all those names, don't you, and the politics and the reigns and all of the rest of it. The names that Luke gives here uh, suggest, like he could have, if all he wanted to communicate was the date on which this stuff happened, he could have done it with just one name, the first name there. I think he's up to something else. I think he's trying to communicate more than just when, not so much just the date and the time. I think he wants to highlight what a desperate 
and depressing situation. Can I say hopeless situation those times were? Luke chapter 3 and verse 1, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. You know, if Luke was just trying to get across, just trying to communicate a date to us, this is, the, this is when it happened, then the first line would have done that, the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. That's the normal way to date stuff in terms of the reigns of kings. No, but did you spot this in the list? If you were a person in Luke's day who longed for the world to become a better place and longed to be part of the movement that made the world a better place, well, whose name out of that list are you going to line up alongside? Who are you going to pin your hopes to? Who would you stand beside, throw your weight behind, whichever metaphor you like, back in Luke's day, who are you going to line up with? Do you have a name in mind there as you're sort of scanning through there? Verse 1, Tiberius... Well, top of the food chain, right? Caesar of the entire Roman world. But, (laughs) you know, he's able to shape justice. He's able to command an army, all of that. But he stands for Rome. You're not going to choose Tiberius. Much the same problem, isn't it, for the rest of them? Pontius, Pilate, the governor, Herod, the tetrarch, Philip, uh, and on it goes. Lysanias, another tetrarch. Um, I won't bore you with the details, but please um, let this summary give you the bitter flavour of it. Uh, here it is from Kent Hughes. All the civil names, you know, of the civil rulers, all the civil names given here evoke wickedness and intrigue. Tiberius, Pilate, Herod, Philip, Lysanias. The religious names, Annas and Caiaphas, similarly project a degenerate priesthood. Actually, listen to this. The mention of their priesthood indicates a serpentine nepotism and an evil concentration of power. (laughs) Here's my point. If you're someone who wishes the world were a better place, you know, looks around at some of the things going on and thinks, what is, where's the solution going to come from? looks around for people of power and influence. We see it at the moment, don't we? Their names and their faces are up on placards all around our city. There's an election coming. Looks around for people of power and influence, whether religious or civil, and you, if you're someone like that and you saw these names summarising the state of your world at the present... See, we've got to see this. There's only one name in that paragraph that that Luke begins with. One name worth your while, worthy of your hope. One name who warrants throwing your weight behind and uh, who we we should be, they would have been hanging out to see this name appear in print again. And I wonder if we need to come to see it in the same way in our day. Luke 3, so from verse 1, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, verse 2, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, here it is, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah in the desert. He, that is John, went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The word of God came again to the people of the Lord who had been hanging out and looking around at this world this, and come to thirst for something better. 
Um, may I di- digress just for a minute? Um, Wednesday evening just gone, uh, I, I sat down with a bunch of fellas, um, you, you, you regulars, you're probably figuring out which, which gathering it was and you're looking at your watch and figuring out which date it is and when in the month it is. Aha, it's book club time of month for Bernard. Um, yeah, I sat down with a bunch of fellas, we each had our, our book and, our, and a beer and we, we get together once a month for a talk about that book that we've been reading together. And uh, this month just gone was, was a modern classic, John Steinbeck's East of Eden. It's a bit of a whopper, took ages to get through, but it is a, it is a modern classic, I'd recommend it to you. Uh, now, whether or not you've read it, there's this common thread that runs right through the book, and it was um, wonderful actually chatting through it with these guys on Wednesday. Uh, a common thread that runs right through the book, and it's about how much we can realistically hope for change in our world. Um, Which when you chew on it, it, it's a pretty unsettling kind of a thought, isn't it? How much can you realistically hope for change amongst the human race and in our world? Are we gonna progress? It's a pretty unsettling thought, uh, you know, as the years roll by, as generations roll past us, as sons, this is what the book was about, as sons, follow in the footsteps of their fathers. And as brothers, you know, we forge our way together in life. And grandsons bury their grandfathers and then the cycle repeats and goes on. Um, Steinbeck, he leads the reader to this really sobering reflection. I don't think we're getting any better at this, at this thing we call life. Are the grandchildren... Are we really that much better at life than our grandparents were? It's a sobering thought. Don't get me wrong, Steinbeck Steinbeck wants you to be good and he wants to be good himself. That comes through very, very clearly. Um, Not a Christian man. The story traces uh, generations of these likeable, I want to say lovable characters uh, through the pages. And as each one rolls around, as each generation rolls around, it's very much like us. Um, the fathers uh, and mothers, the fathers sincerely long for their sons to be better men than they were. You know, they want them to go further and be better and, and become better men and avoid the stupid, evil, foolish mistakes that we've made along the way. But in the end, has that proved a very reliable hope? <laughs> has it worked out? Are we better people, really? fit to make the world in our generation a better place. Oh, we've advanced in technology, but are we better people? Sobering thought. Luke chapter 3, verse 1, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, verse 2, during the reign of, sorry, the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, which at the very least, I think, that was the rallying call. Are you going to be part of this thing that you've longed for and hoped for, something, a change in the world, something that's actually going to get traction and make a difference? Because God has spoken now, spoken a word that's it's going to change things, isn't it? When God speaks to make the world a better place, so are you with God or are you against him? 
he's going to stand just with the masses. Uh, and then uh, Luke continues, doesn't he, verse 4, using the hundreds of years old words of Isaiah the prophet. Uh, this, was, uh, this is how he sees John. Um, a voice, sorry, verse 4, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, this is how Luke sees John for us, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all mankind, all mankind will see God's salvation. You have permission, do you see? If you're standing there on the banks of the Jordan, hearing John's message, you have permission, do you see, to reignite a hope that's worth standing for, to get excited about what God's doing in the world. Prepare the way. It's finally happening, finally a difference. Something worth living for, something, if it came to it, even worth dying for. So prepare the way for the Lord. Will you do that? But I have some grim news for you. And I think it's best that I give it to you straight, actually. Here it is. Your spiritual hollowness saps the spiritual lives of all the Christians around about you. Your disinterest in the glory of Jesus, you know, the way your life in practice, it revolves around so many other people and priorities and thoughts, but not so much Jesus. So your disinterest in the glory of Jesus, your drowsiness when it comes to Christ's return to judge. I'm not sure anyone looking in would even know that you believe God means to call us to account one day, weigh our deeds in the balance, your disinterest, your drowsiness, your disregard for his word and his ways at the very points where your conscience screams to you from time to time, these are not his ways. Consider for just a moment the effect that your spiritual hollowness, can I say hypocrisy, has on the lives of the people around you deprives them of a true view of your saving God, Uh, not to mention the story that it tells you about the state of your own soul, your actual standing before God, the kind of encounter that you can expect to have with him on the day of the Lord when Jesus Christ returns in power. Uh, Now, brothers and sisters, this morning, um, most of you know me well enough and uh, you don't have me pegged as a fire and brimstone (laughs) Um, kind of a preacher. That's certainly not how I see myself. But can we at least answer this? Have I, in those couple of paragraphs, have I adequately captured John's words for those, get this, who came out to to see him, to hear him, to be baptised by him? Those weren't the words that he reserved, you see, um, for the lazy bones stuck in the mud, couldn't be bothered, stayed at home people. Those were his words for the people who came out to see and hear and engage with this uh, preacher who had the word of the Lord and and, and the the hopes for mankind for the future. Have have I at least accurately summarised it? Have a look at chapter 3, verse 7. They're startling words. They're punching the guts kind of words. John said to the crowds, to the crowds coming out to be baptised by him, you brood of vipers. And I'm sure you're aware, 
snakes do not get a good rap in the Bible. You know, that's not, that's not a positive thing to be saying. And I think the point, the, the point there with vipers is it's venomous snakes. People who pose a threat to the people around them will, are harmful to those around them, not just snakes like, you know, sneaky snakes or kind of whatever. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptised by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the tree and every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. You see what he's saying there? Are you the real McCoy? Or do you just want to be Christian in name only and that's it? Is it there? Is it deep within you? Have you actually responded? Are you properly listening to the word of God in the gospel? And it seems that they responded, doesn't it? Verse 10, what should we do then? The crowd asked. Now, friends, this morning, if I can speak personally for a moment, the thing that makes a passage like this, um, I want to say difficult to preach, the thing that I've had to wrestle with Um, this week is just this we all know don't we we all know that none of us is above this kind of probing question are we if we were eyeballed by john the baptist and he started having a go at us about the the sincerity of our faith the depth of our faith is there any of us that's above that question i know i'm not above that question i'm not off the hook for the for his call to repent a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins uh, I'm not off, off the hook for his call to repent before the coming of God in power to save and to judge, namely the Lord Jesus. And the question, uh, indeed, even the answer, it's not that it's a complicated question or answer, is it? We already know what it is. He came, we're told, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The message is pretty simple. I just need to repent before the Lord Jesus. If you want to prepare the way for the Lord, if you want to prepare the way for the coming, saving, judging Lord, oh, it's very simple, at least on paper. In the first place, it's not, I'll come up with complex plans for outreach to prepare the way out there for the Lord. No, no, it's very simple. Prepare the way in here, prepare your heart. Repent in your heart, turn your life back to God before it's too late. And this, what shall we do, Well, it's not very complicated. John's answer there to the crowd, uh, it's it's almost exactly the same to each of the people who comes to him, isn't it? It's not a complicated answer. John basically gives them a test for the sincerity of of their repentance in actual life. What shall we do? Well, verse 11, John answered, the man with two tunics should share with him who has none and the one who has food should do the same. Tax collectors also came to be baptised. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely, be content with your pay. Everyone, you see, can see just in the details of life, you either live your life for you, like you're all that matters, like I'm all that there is, like God's not going to do anything, like Jesus came and went and that's all done and dusted in the pages of history and that's that. Or you live like it shows that you believe. 
And that's what John's angling for. Are you going to live like it shows that you believe? Like he is your hope, like his salvation is the best and the only hope that this world has really got when it comes down to it. The only hope for our dark and cold world that just does seem to cycle along generation after generation. But in Jesus, there is a bright hope. There is something different. There is a power to actually make a change in the lives of men and women and their destinies. One worth turning your whole life toward. What should we do? Verse 15. The people were waiting expectantly and we're all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ. John answered them all, I baptise you with water, but one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he'll burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and preached the good news to them. Uh, Now, we we begin our series in Luke. We come in at a funny point because from John's point of view, of course, Jesus is still future. He hasn't appeared on the scene quite yet. Um, He was just around the corner. And this Christ that he was looking forward to, gosh, he was more powerful, verse 16. He was going to be able to do it. Uh, Verse 16 again, he was more worthy. Uh, Most people in the first century were barefoot and wore sandals. This is Daryl Bock writing. So uh, one duty of a slave was to untie the sandals from the master's feet. And in Judaism, he writes, so amongst the Jews, this was such a degrading act that a Hebrew slave was not to undertake it. And what's John saying here? He, 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 doesn't say, he doesn't say, oh, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't, I wouldn't take his sandals off. He doesn't say he couldn't do it. He says, no, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals, the one who's coming. Thus, John is saying that he is so inferior to the coming one that he's not worthy to perform even the most menial task for his master. So here's where I'm left wondering brothers and sisters and I wonder what you make of it if John the Baptist the man who longed to see Jesus day if John the Baptist were to have a look at my life were to come in amongst us this morning perhaps go back to to my place or your place for lunch if John the Baptist were to show up today knowing that we live in the age where Jesus has come, has been, has saved, has risen, now reigns, will one day return and we know of that hope and that expectation. If John were to look in at my life or at your life and look at the things that I withhold from Jesus in my life, look at the sins that I continue in or the ruts in life, just the habits, the ways, oh, that's just how Bernie is continue in those things, the things I seem to live for, uh, the people before whom I feel my life stands or falls, would John conclude, ah, there's a man who lives for Jesus. There's a man who lives for Jesus alone. Christ is his Lord. Christ is his judge. Christ is his hope and his longing 
before Jesus and Jesus alone. He has repented from Jesus. He knows forgiveness for all of his sins. He stands free before his Lord. The good news of Jesus is the good news that that this man knows his world needs and he bends his life to the purpose of others hearing it. Would John say, here is a man whose pride has been swept away and who stands before Jesus alone every day of his life, in every sphere of his life. There, right there, is a sign of hope for our world, a human being dedicated to Jesus, repenting before him, following him, prepared for salvation, and so a signpost for the Lord that he loves and who first loved him. We begin our series in Luke's Gospel with a pretty heavy word, don't we? With a pretty heavy word, a confronting word. Uh, And um, also with the assurance, those last two verses that Marion read for us before, with the assurance that, well, for now, the world will continue in its dark days, won't it? If we wait for repentance uh, to become easy or popular or on trend, then we will die waiting, verse 19. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things that Herod had done, Herod added this to them all, he locked up John in prison. And of course, we know the outcome for John the Baptist, and it wasn't pretty. We begin our march toward Easter, yes, with a heavy word, but not with a hopeless word, friends. Quite the opposite. And if you're someone who longs for this world to be a better place, longs for, to see the power for change, who longs to be part of the movement that makes this world a better place and starts to address the, the brokenness and the darkness of this dark world and indeed your own heart, then please won't you start right here. In the midst of our dark world, the word of God came to John and he went preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so may that preparation continue in us and through us over these couple of months. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that your name, your great, saving, glorious name would be hallowed, that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven. We do desire those things, Father. And as we're reminded this morning, may it begin in us and in our hearts, not just out there in the world and to the world and changing the world, but leaving us unchanged and proud, and hard, and unrepentant. No, lead us, O God, even against our own uh, selfish, sinful wandering. Lead us back to daily repentance before Jesus, please. Father, in your strange and beautiful way, we know this is how the world's changed. As Christ is preached and believed on, in the power of your spirit. So do please, God, give us a clearer and a more urgent sense of the fearful judgment of Christ on all that's wrong in this world and especially on all that is wrong in us. And may we derive that sense from the cross of our Lord along with an unshakable gratitude that you have spared us of that fate by your grace. And Father, your word tells us 
right here, in fact, all mankind will see God's salvation. And God, we pray that your kingdom would come not only in us, but through us and for Christ's fame and glory around about us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.